during the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and God's kingdom will stand forever. Welcome to the end. The Bible says, Upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. What dramatic language and what could Babylon possibly be? Babylon, of course, is introduced at the very beginning of the Bible, right back in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. We find it existing all the way down through to the end of time and becoming a symbol of rebellion and evil against God. When we think about the origins of Babylon founded by Nimrod so long ago, we find a city that builds a tower and builds an empire around itself. It sets itself up in rebellion against God. And part of the purpose for building that tower was to survive their rebellion. The tower in itself was a tacit admission of the existence of God and of God's power. These were not a group of people who had the maybe the benefit of time that we might have today with which to be able to deny the events of the past and to deny the existence of God. They could see around them at that time firsthand evidence of the flood that had destroyed the world. They could go and speak with Noah and his family and hear eyewitness accounts, not only of the flood, but of the Garden of Eden and the angel that guarded, that guarded it. Here we find people who rebel against God in a very, very different way. They're like, yes, we know that God exists and we're going to rebel against God. Therefore, we will build a tower so that we can survive our rebellion against God. And so the city has a rather troubled start, becomes a place of captivity for God's people in the middle of the Bible, and at the end of the Bible, a symbol of those who have arrayed themselves against God. So who and what is Babylon? Let's look for some clues as we work our way through this passage. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 1, There came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me saying unto me, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot that sits on many waters. And so we start to get some identifying characteristics as to who this might be. The first is that this entity is defined or described as under the symbol of a woman, a woman in Bible prophecy, a symbol of a church, something we're well familiar with. And so if a woman symbolizes a church and this one is symbolized by a harlot, this is a church that is corrupt at its core, at its foundations. It may not be visibly so, but underneath it's all white-ended and rotted away. The Bible goes on and gives us some more identifying characteristics. It says in verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. Here we find a church that is getting in bed with the political leaders of the world, an illicit relationship. The Bible teaches that religion and politics are to remain separate. We find many examples of it in the Bible. You even find the example of King Uzziah who went into the temple and the priest said to him, you can't be in here, this is for the priests. This is the realm of religion. And he came back and said, well, I'm king. I can go anywhere I want. I can do whatever I want. I'll offer incense on the golden altar. And when he did, he was struck with leprosy. 
because he'd rebelled against God. You see, his role was the political leader. The role of the priests was to be the religious leaders and God always keeps these two things separate. Whenever they come together, persecution is the result. And here we find this illicit union described as fornication between the great harlot and the political leaders of the world, a religio-political organization. The Bible goes on and speaks about the inhabitants of the earth being made drunk with the wine of Babylon. Goes on, so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now we have seen an entity already in the book of Daniel that is associated with a beast with those ten horns. It was called the little horn or the Antichrist. And what we are seeing here is a list of parallels. We have a woman, a symbol of a church, riding a beast, a symbol of a state. This is a more detailed view. We find a church that controls a state or a government, a union of the two with the church in control. She was clothed in purple and scarlet, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand. The Bible speaks here of an institution of tremendous, unfathomable wealth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered. He was wondering, what's going on here? He was amazed at what he was seeing and he was horrified. And so when we read about this particular woman right here, we find a number of identifying characteristics. First of all, she's a woman. That's a symbol of a church. See, she sits on many waters. She, she is in control of a vast population of the world. It is an impure church. It is a religion. It is a union of religion and politics together. It is a union in which the church controls the state. It is associated with blasphemy against God. It's described as the mother church. It persecutes God's people. It's associated with the ten-horned beast. And finally, when we come down to verse 8, it says, The beast that you saw was and is not and shall ascend. In other words, it existed, it receives a deadly wound, and then it is healed. If we look at these identifying characteristics as they are given to us in the Bible, there can be no doubt that this is another passage that is referring to the Antichrist. These are the same identifying characteristics that you find in connection with the beast of Revelation chapter 13 or the little horn of Daniel chapter 7 or any of the other places where the Antichrist is described in Scripture. And so we know here that we are dealing with the Antichrist already identified as the Vatican. Now that's a fairly heavy statement. We have to ask ourselves the question, is that the be-all and the end-all? Is that where, is that where the whole story of Babylon kind of ends? We look at our world today and we see some terrible things happening with, within Christianity. And we ask ourselves, okay, is this the only part of Christianity where there is a problem? Well, if we go to Revelation chapter 14, I want to show you another aspect of Babylon. Revelation chapter 14. 
You have these three angels that are taking the everlasting gospel to the whole world at the end of time, just before Jesus comes back. The second of these angels in his proclamation of the everlasting gospel says this in verse 8, there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now when we look at the Vatican, this is an institution that has existed for centuries. Here we have a proclamation at the end of time that is proclaiming the fall of Babylon at the end of time. We can see centuries of persecution against God's people and the corruption of God's word down through history. But to fall, you have to be in an elevated position. At the end of time, the Bible indicates that Babylon is much, much more than just the great organization that ruled the world during the Dark Ages. This is the general corruption of Christianity. Now, once again, that's a big statement. And as, as a Christian myself, I often feel compelled to defend Christianity. Christianity today, you know, is kind of a little bit unpopular. People like to throw stones and aspersions at Christianity. And so often the natural reaction is, is to jump in and to be defensive and to say, no, I'm going to defend us as Christians. We feel like, you know, we have a certain brotherhood and sisterhood as Christians. But when I read these passages here, I ask myself the question, you know what, should we? Should we really be standing up in defense of Christianity? When we see Christianity going down the same path as the Pharisees, and let me expand on that for a moment. You see, the Pharisees in the time of Jesus taught that health and wealth were a sign of the blessings of God. Of course, The natural conclusion was the opposite of that. If you were poor or if you were lacking in health, then you had less of the blessings of God. I'm wondering whether can someone can explain to me how and at what point or in what way that is different to the prosperity gospel. You can flick on your TV and watch the preachers stand up there over and over again. And I'm not against television evangelists. Some people kind of saying that Sharissa and I have suddenly become television evangelists and we're on your screen right now. But you know, it bothers me. And I've seen the statements that have come through, you know, even on our Facebook page from people who are super skeptical about the end program. You know, oh, they're just trying to get your money. It's all about money. Christianity has earned that reputation. And that reputation is well justified. Because there are a lot within Christianity that are just after your money. And Christianity has become a business. And Jesus needs to come back and to cleanse the temple again. Because as they were preaching the prosperity gospel, as the Pharisees were the ones who were saying that wealth is a sign of the blessing of God, that God wants you to be wealthy. He wants to bless you with an appeal to the flesh. So the prosperity preachers are preaching exactly the same thing today. That concerns me. And we could look at many other examples of the same thing. Truly, we live in a time period 
when Christianity has fallen. Even with the COVID-19 crisis that has gone around, you know, the conspiracy theories that Christians have been espousing and the foolishness which we have surrounded ourselves with. And then you have so many people who are like, well, you know, Christianity is just a bunch of conspiracy theorists. And once again, my natural reaction is is to stand up in defense. But you know, when we read what the Bible says here, should we really be defending it? Isn't this what we should be expecting at the end of time? Shouldn't we be expecting the corruption of Christianity? Shouldn't Christianity be one of the most corrupt organizations in our world right now? If it wasn't, Jesus would not be coming soon. The Bible gives them specific identifying characteristics in relationship to this prophecy right here. And if we go over to Revelation chapter 17 again, where the Bible speaks about Babylon, in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 2, the Bible says, With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. What is the wine of her fornication? What is the wine of Babylon? You know, there's some clues that we find if we go back to the very first reference to the wine of Babylon. That, of course, is found in the book of Daniel. Let's turn our Bibles, and I hope that you are able to follow me wherever you are at this particular time. Let's go over to the book of Daniel, and we are going to go to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5, and let's notice what is taking place here in Daniel 5, because it's going to be illuminating for us on this subject. The Bible says, Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Well, Belshazzar was the king of Babylon. And if he is drinking wine before his lords, then the wine he is drinking is the wine of Babylon. Let's deal with a little bit of history that is going on right here. As this great feast is taking place, the Persians are camped outside the city of Babylon. They have laid siege to the greatest city the ancient world would ever know. And they have designs on taking this great city. Belshazzar is on the inside and he has a little bit of a problem to deal with and that is morale. He needs to keep up the morale of the defenders. Persians offer a pretty good deal If you come over to the Persian side, they have a pretty good constitution and they'll look after you. And that was kind of weakening to the defenders. But there was something else that was a problem for Belshazzar. And he acts in a very specific way to address it. You see, one of the most prominent men of the Babylonian Empire for decades was a man by the name of Belteshazzar, known in the Bible as Daniel. He had served as prime minister of the empire under Nebuchadnezzar. And as a very significant person, he had received, he had received dreams and visions and prophecies of God. In two of those prophecies, in fact, three of those prophecies had predicted the fall of the Babylonian empire. And the last one had named the coalition that would be formed between the Persians and the Medes as being the entity that would bring Babylon to an end. And now they're camped outside the city. 
And the Babylonians would have to ask themselves the question, our most prominent statesman prophesied that these people would gain the victory over us. What should we do about it? Well, Belshazzar decides that he's going to do something about it. You see, this is a prophecy that came from Daniel's God, from the Jewish God, from Yahweh. And so to strengthen the minds and the morale of his troops, he adds something to this feast. He decides that he's going to defy the God of Israel. And when he publicly and openly defies the God of Israel, he can demonstrate, you don't need to be afraid of this God. You don't need to be worried about anything that this God has to say. He is a weak God and he can't even protect the own, his own things that are precious to him. And so what does he do? Belshazzar, verse 2, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink wine in them. This is the first reference to the wine of Babylon. And this reference here is to a group of people who are very, very aware of the existence of Yahweh and of the power of Yahweh and of the prophecies of Yahweh. The one true God. And because they are aware, they take his vessels, his cups, his sauces, his bowls, etc., and they use them in this pagan festival to the Babylonian god Marduk. And in doing so, what they are doing is blending together elements of true and false worship. The book of Daniel, like the book of Revelation, is all about true and false worship in conflict with each other. And as they blend them together, the Bible speaks about a bloodless hand that suddenly appears and begins writing on the wall. And I don't know about you, but if I was there right then, that would terrify me. And it terrified Belshazzar. He calls in his cabinet, his counselors. They can't explain to him the writing. And at last, he's forced to call in Belteshazzar, Daniel himself, to explain it. Daniel looks at the writing. He immediately knows what it means. You are weighed in the balances. You have been found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. In other words, Probation has closed on you. The Bible speaks about Babylon at the end of time. The Bible says that at the end of time, Babylon will be serving their wine to the whole world. A mixture of the elements of true worship and false worship blended together. And as they serve this concoction to the whole world, what the world does not realize is that probation is about to close. Jesus is about to come back and their last chance is about to come to an end. This is serious stuff that we have right here. We need to dig further. What is it that alcohol symbolizes in the Bible? To find the answer to that, we go back to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 29. We're going to look in Isaiah 29. 
Isaiah 29, we begin reading in verse 9. It says, stay yourselves in wonder. Cry out and cry. They are drunk, but not with wine, not with alcohol. They stagger, but not with strong drink. Here Isaiah is seeing this and he's like, what's, what's, what's happening here? These people are deeply intoxicated, but they haven't been imbibing any alcoholic beverages. So what is it that has intoxicated them? He continues on, the Lord has poured out upon you the spirit of a deep sleep. He's closed your eyes. The prophets and your rulers, the seers, has he covered. The vision has become as the words of a book that is sealed, which men give to somebody that is learned, saying, read this. He says, I cannot, for it is sealed. So they give it to somebody who's not learned, saying, read this. And he cannot, he says, I cannot, for I'm not learned. Word of God is right there. And people are making every excuse in the book not to be reading the word of God. They are looking everywhere but God's word. It kind of reminds me of those churches. Forgive me if I speak plainly. But so many churches I see where people enter the church and they're not even carrying a Bible. Why aren't people carrying Bibles when they go to churches anymore? The simple reality is they don't need them. They're not going to need them inside that building. Why? Because Babylon is fallen. And I don't care whether it's my church, your church, or anyone else's church. If you're going to a church where people aren't taking their Bibles, where people are not digging into the Word of God, when they're not making this the center of their faith, then you are not worshipping at a church that is going to lead you to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus says, I am the Word. And if you want to find Jesus, you're going to find it right here in the Word of God. But Satan hates Jesus and he'll do anything he can to distract you from the Word of God, to get you as far away from the Bible as he possibly can, to separate you from Scripture. Friends, we need to get back to this book right here because this book leads us to Jesus Christ. And we need to have Jesus in our hearts. We need to have him in our minds. We need to have him on the throne of our being so that he lives his life out through us. These guys are making excuses. Oh, no, we don't want to read the Bible. Any excuse they can. What does it go on to say? Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips they honor me, In other words, you've got a group of people here. They're not saying we are against Jesus Christ. Oh, no, 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 not at all. Like, oh, no, we follow Jesus. We are followers of Jesus. They are proclaiming with their mouth and their lips that they are the followers of Jesus Christ. But their hearts are far from Jesus Christ because when it comes to the word of God, it's like, no, we don't want to have anything to do with that. But they have removed their heart far from me. And their fear or their honour toward me is taught by the precepts or the teachings of men. When you find a situation where people follow the preacher rather than the word of God, that's a dangerous situation to be. And it's exactly the same for any preacher as it is for Sharissa and myself. If you don't finish this video, And if you don't get into your Bibles to find out whether what Sharissa and I are saying is true, if you're just sitting back there on your couch or in your kitchen or in the backseat of your car, wherever it might be, I don't know, 
But if you're just sitting back there and like, oh, well, Lyle said it and Sharissa said it, therefore it must be true. You're setting yourself up for deception, not because we are trying to deceive anyone, but because everyone needs to check everyone who speaks about the word of God from the Bible. When you know what the Bible says, you know what the truth is. When our honor towards God is taught by the teachings of men and not the words of scripture, we are in trouble. We need to know what the Bible says and we need to know it in our heart and we need to allow it to change us to become more like Jesus Christ. We are in great danger when the teachings of men replace the teachings of Scripture. The Bible describes that this is what alcohol symbolizes. If we go over to Matthew chapter 15, we noted this the other day, we're going to note it in a little bit more detail this time. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus takes this principle Alcohol in the Bible is a symbol of the teachings of men that replace the teachings of Scripture. That's the broad principle. Jesus makes it more specific. Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees that were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Wow! In the middle of the COVID-19 crisis, Not washing your hands would have to be the cardinal sin. Was it that Jesus' disciples were being unhygienic? No, not at all. You see, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders had invented the ceremonial washing of hands. You did not have to have water to do it, but you had to do it. It had nothing to do with hygiene. You'd pour, you know, water into, into this hand, a little bit into the palm of this hand, let it run down through your fingers into the palm of this hand and then through those fingers onto the ground. And if you didn't have any water available, you'd still go through the motions of it and it had nothing to do with hygienic washing. Jesus' disciples were hygienic, but they didn't go through this you know, practice of making themselves clean from you know, possible contact with a Gentile, somebody not of their race or whatever it might be. They didn't. They, Jesus' disciples went into those kind of traditions. Jesus answered and said, Why do you transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? That's interesting. They'd made a loophole in the fifth commandment. So they could get away with honoring their parents by providing for them in their old age. And Jesus holds up these two issues. Okay, which one's more important? A ceremonial washing of hands, which is a human tradition, or the commandments of God. That is what he goes on to say. He says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you. And then he takes Isaiah's prophecy and he quotes, these people draw near me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus makes it even more specific. This is not just a blending of true worship and false worship together. This is not just the teachings of men replacing the teachings of God. This is the teachings of men that violate the commandments of God. And when we go back to Revelation chapter 17 and we place it in the context of Revelation chapter 14, which one of the commandments is mentioned there? It's the fourth commandment. And what do we see happening in our world today? Well, you know, the Sabbath is not so popular. But once again, 
there's a blessing there. We've already spoken about it a couple of times. I hope you've had opportunity to keep your first Sabbath already. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. I don't know. But you're going to receive a tremendous blessing when you do. You know, the fall of Babylon includes more than just that because when you go over to Revelation chapter 18, Revelation chapter 18, there's another aspect that is brought in right here. And I kind of wish we had more time to delve into this one. But Revelation chapter 18, there's another angel that turns up and he doesn't add any new information to the first three angels. He just adds more power. And Revelation chapter 18, he says, he says this, after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power. The earth was lightened with his glory. He cried mightily with a strong voice saying, Babylon the great has fallen, has fallen. It has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. That's interesting because here it speaks about false spirits, demons and evil angels. Have you ever thought about the foundational doctrine of spiritualism and where it begins? It is all about just one thing. Satan's first lie, you shall not surely die. The immortality of the soul. And what we find is that Christianity, the Bible says that the end of time is going to be filled with the teachings of spiritualism. In other words, you don't really die when you die. You go to heaven, you don't wait down here for the resurrection, you're already in heaven. Satan told that in the Garden of Eden, he continues to do so. These are some of the salient doctrines that identify Babylon at the end of time. It's not hard to look out at the world today. And to see the corruptions that have invaded Christianity is not hard for us to point our finger and say, you know, that's terrible. And we're so glad that we're not like them. But you know what? That's not really going to serve us any useful purpose, is it? We need to look within our own hearts. And we need to ask ourselves the question and we need to do some serious heart searching. Has Babylon somehow invaded my heart? Has Babylon somehow started to break my relationship with Jesus Christ? Has it begun to erode my connection with Jesus? The Bible says at the end of time, because iniquity abounds, the love of many will grow cold. There's a relationship between the two. Why should there? Well, you see, it works like this. Iniquity abounds in Babylon at the end of time and it starts to rub off by beholding. We become changed and we need to search our own hearts. Where are God's people at the end of time? Well, verse 4 is very enlightening. And I want you all to think about this. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, that's Babylon, my people. Where does the Bible say that God's people are at the end of time? The Bible says that God's people are in Babylon. That should be a message to you and to me. If God's people are in Babylon, then this message right here is a message for us. Why don't we all determine today to come out of Babylon to make that full surrender to Jesus Christ? You've been listening to The End. For more information about this program or any of this show's free offers, visit www.theend.digital.